You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We're going to start off today with one of my favorite things in the world, quiche. And spinach quiche, all the better. This from smittenkitchen.com, it's spinach quiche revisited. The strangest thing has happened to me this summer. My obsessive pining for the new next recipe has waned. Gone are the days when the thought of cooking something I've already made was enough to make me not cook at all. Instead, it seems that this site is finally working for me. I have an archive of recipes I adore, largely ones that work as they should, and the answer to, what should we have for dinner, is now frequently, ooh, these kefta meatballs were so good, let's have them again. Eager to break the routine of working and eating by myself nearly every single day since I began freelancing this summer, I had a friend over for lunch on Friday, but I also had a lot of work to get done that day. Was this the time to make that new savory tart that I've been eyeing for the fall? No. Was this the time to go to the store and buy more stuff when our refrigerator was already brimming with the remnants of our North Fork Farmer's Market's finds the weekend before? No. It was time to make a simple tomato salad, zucchini carpaccio, and most importantly, to revisit my favorite quiche. This was one of the first quiches I ever made. It remains one of my go-tos, and I suspect it always will. One of my favorite parts about it is the accessibility of the ingredients. In some cases, some lucky cases, I already have them on hand, but that may be just because many of the ingredients are the core ones in my everyday cooking. It's also one of those gorgeous recipes that's impossible to break. I have made it with different cheeses, and it still worked. For an Atkins-prone family member, I baked it in a greased glass quiche pan without a crust. I have swapped the light cream with heavy and gone in the opposite direction and used skim milk or even evaporated low-fat milk. I have used red or white onions instead of scallions. I have added a smashed clove of garlic. I have par-baked the crust, but I generally don't bother, and I don't find it particularly soggy. I've used a homemade tart shell, and I have used a store-bought one, but I will not admit which one I worked with yesterday. And I know what you're thinking. Haven't you already told us about this? Yes, but if there is even one person out there that hasn't made it yet that will so after today, this post will have fulfilled its quota. P.S. It makes an excellent Sunday night dinner as well. Here's the recipe for spinach quiche. This is adapted from Bon Appetit, October of 1991. It's an oldie but a goodie. I generally use one half recipe of Martha Stewart's pâté brisé, minus the sugar, rolled out and pressed into either a 9-inch round pie dish or a removable bottom 9-inch round tart pan as the base. You can parbate this if you wish, though I generally do not. The original recipe calls for a sheet of puff pastry as the shell. It is not my preference to do it this way, but I am sure others would like it. So I made this yesterday with one and a half pounds of regular spinach. And after removing the heavier stems, washing and wilting it down in a pan, but before pressing out all the water, this worked out to be 10 ounces of spinach. So I'd say if you're interested in starting with fresh grown up, i.e. not the baby spinach that you wouldn't bother removing the stems for spinach, start with the same amount. 
It's even more delicious this way, especially with the sautéed leeks I used as well. You'll also need one three-ounce package of cream cheese at room temperature, one-third cup of half-and-half half or milk, three eggs, one ten-ounce package of frozen chopped spinach, thawed and drained, one-half cup of grated cheddar, Gruyere works well too, one-quarter cup of grated Parmesan, four to six green onions thinly sliced, one-half cup finely diced red or white onions or shallots work as well, one-quarter teaspoon salt, one-quarter teaspoon pepper. Preheat your oven to 425 degrees Fahrenheit and beat the cream cheese in a medium bowl until smooth. Gradually beat in half and half and eggs. Mix in the remaining ingredients and then pour the mixture into the prepared crust. Bake until the crust is golden brown and the filling is set about 25 minutes. Cool 10 minutes before serving. Yum! Next recipe we've got is for roasted yams and chickpeas with yogurt. Unusual combos here, but I think it seems really, really good. If one was ever to question their lifetime of unwavering devotion to New York City, February would be the month to do it. It's cold and has been for some time. It's cold and will be for some time. And somewhere out in California, a friend, but really, are, are they if they torture you so, is welcoming their first strawberries. You get strawberries in New York too, but for about five minutes every June, and they cost about as much per square foot as real estate in a neighborhood with multiple pour-over coffee outlets. So yes, February is the month, but this February, I never thought it would be the one. This is, by every measurement known, the mildest winter that we've ever had, and the shortest too. I am, by almost every measurement I can invent, the most loyal and content New Yorker that you'll meet, but not the shortest, although close. <laughs> but every night for the last week, I've pestered my husband with talk of Los Angeles, a mythical place where it's warm and sunny all year round, where the tacos are unparalleled, where the avocados are exceptional, where you apparently don't need to be a millionaire to have a home with more than two bedrooms. This is probably what happens to even the most stalwart New Yorker after too long without a vacation. But fortunately, for times of great flux and inner turmoil, there are always cookbooks offering an escape. Like many a shivering East Coaster, I've been gazing lovingly over the Jelena restaurant cookbook this week, an understandable side effect of cookbooks photographed by Michael Graydon and Nicole Herriot. That cover... Maybe I don't even want to move to L.A. I want to move into that cover, a tucked-in nest of fiery squash, protecting you from the slab concrete. We should talk about the cooking, too. And while it occasionally feels the tiniest bit formulaic, when that formula happens to be stunningly, gently charred vegetables, fish, and meat dabbed with something acidic, a yogurt sauce, bagnacada, salsa verde, and all the other sauces that I write across my heart. Something rich, like avocado, cheese, a bit of fruit, something fresh, herbs or another shaved vegetable, and something crunchy, seeds, nuts, crushed croutons, crispy onions. Hi'i'ili, I don't know what that is, H-I-I-I-I-L-Y. It is clearly in the service of greatness. I feel a responsibility to warn the home cook that sub-recipes abound. 
Ocean Trout Roulettes has four. There are three within the rye rags with sausage, mushrooms, and fennel that I'm going to make anyway because you read that title, didn't you? But there's so much else in here for us. An enviable pizza section, a chickpea stew with tomato and turmeric. I would swan dive into it if I could. It would be a disservice to us to let this to keep us away. The 30 deep vegetable section alone is worth the cover price. There isn't a thing in there that I don't want to eat for the rest of my life. Because I'm back in the kind of place where I roast sweet potatoes all the time for children, tiny and mid-sized, I was drawn to the yams first. They're roasted in long wedges with a bit of honey, olive oil, and a tremendous amount of pepper flakes, adjust to taste, of course, until they're singed and steak-like and then drizzled with a sharp lime yogurt and thinly sliced scallions. For my purposes, I felt like I needed to add one more thing to make this more of a dinner centerpiece, and that thing was chickpeas, roasted until crisp with smoked paprika and salt. My husband and I will unapologetically admit that we usually only eat sweet potatoes begrudgingly. They're fine, but we mostly keep them around for the kids. But not this time. We didn't even offer to share. Just decimated the dish after they went to bed. My sole regret is having not doubled it so I'd have more left for today's lunch. Here's the recipe for roasted yams and chickpeas with yogurt. This one adapted from Jelena. You're going to end up with more yogurt and more chickpeas than you probably need or fewer potatoes. It's all a matter of perspective, really. This serves two hungrily and four humbly. You'll need three large yams or orange flesh sweet potatoes cut into four lengthwise wedges or eight if your yams are very thick. One to two tablespoons of honey. I used one and two are called for. One tablespoon of crushed red pepper flakes. Espelette are called for. I used mild Aleppo. One and three quarters cups of chickpeas, that's one 15 ounce can, drained and patted dry on towels. Four tablespoons of olive oil. One quarter teaspoon of smoked paprika. Kosher salt and freshly ground black pepper. One half cup of Greek style plain yogurt. Four tablespoons of fresh lime juice from approximately two limes. Two scallions, both green and white parts, trimmed and thinly sliced for garnish. You're going to heat your oven to 425 degrees Fahrenheit. Line two baking sheets with foil for minimal mess. Coat one, this one you'll use for the yams, um, with one tablespoon of olive oil. Then you're going to toss the yams with honey, one tablespoon olive oil, and one half tablespoon of pepper flakes. Let sit in a bowl for five to ten minutes and then toss the chickpeas with one tablespoon of olive oil, smoked paprika, and salt to taste. Spread the yams out on an olive-oiled baking sheet in one layer, season with salt and pepper, and roast for 30 minutes until nicely toasted underneath. Flip or move the wedges around and roast for 5 to 10 more minutes until soft and singed. For extra color, run them under the broiler for a final minute. Meanwhile, spread chickpeas on the second uncoated baking sheet and roast in the oven for 20 minutes, rolling around once or twice so that they cook evenly until they're lightly browned and crispy on the outside, and then set those aside. 
Whisk the yogurt, the remaining tablespoon of olive oil, and lime juice together in a small dish, and then season with salt and pepper to taste. Arrange the yams on a plate or platter and drizzle some of the yogurt over, then about half the chickpeas. Garnish with scallions and the remaining pepper flakes, plus flaky sea salt, if you have any, and keep the extra chickpeas and yogurt on the side. And dig in. Yummy. That sounds like a good one, too. Next, we've got a recipe for cauliflower cheese. What? You've never heard of cauliflower cheese before? Well, it's right up there on the American Heart Association's recommended diet, above the kale and above the oat bran. Okay, well, maybe just the cauliflower is. I realize that this dish may sound strange if you've never heard of it. The first time I saw it on a menu in the UK last fall, I thought a word was missing, perhaps with or and. I mean, you cannot make cheese out of cauliflower or vice versa, or at least I hope not. And then I tried it, bubbling and brown in a small ramekin aside my roast at a tiny inn in the middle of nowhere that looks like something you'd see in a Bridget Jones diary, basically where I learned everything I knew about the UK before I got there. And I stopped talking. I stopped thinking. My heart may or may not have stopped beating for a moment, though I'm sure it was love, not fibrillations. How could it be anything but when cauliflower florets are draped with a sharp cheddar cheese sauce spiked with mustard and a bit of cayenne and then baked in the oven until bronzed and... Wait, what were we talking about again? This is a British dish. If the sharp cheddar, mustard powder, cayenne, and charmed name didn't give it away. I realize that British food has long been a punching bag for other supposedly superior world cuisines, but I found this to be anything but the case. Even if I had the awesome names of national dishes, Toad in the Holes, Bubble and Squeaks, Spotted Dicks, Singing Hinnies, Jam Roly Polies, is it shimming, Singing Hinnies, no it's Hinnies, <laughs> Jam Roly Polies, and doorstop sandwiches would have been more than compensated for any failures in the flavor department. So, I understand that you're very likely thinking, but I like cauliflower. I can eat it roasted with just salt and pepper. Why would I bury it in a thick layer of cheese sauce? But I think you're gonna going about this all wrong. Do you know what cauliflower cheese really is? It's basically low-carb mac and cheese. I mean, look what a valiant effort you've made in reducing the amount of pasta count in your life. That means you can definitely have it more often. And let's say you're shivering in the midst of the 11th cold rainy day of the 23rd so far in October. Well, I think you owe it to yourself to start right now for dinner tonight. <laughs> Here is the recipe for cauliflower cheese. I think a dish like this could have endless variations. You could infuse the milk, warming it with a bay leaf or minced clove of garlic. You could stir chopped parsley into the sauce for color. And if you don't have dry mustard, you can add two teaspoons of smooth Dijon or an English mustard to the sauce along with the cheese. You could sprinkle some plain breadcrumbs on top for extra crunch. Finally, I saw a version online in which the chefs had grilled pork sausages and sliced them up into the dish baking them with the cheese sauce as well for more of a meal-in-one dish. So this serves four as a side, 
You'll need one medium head of cauliflower. That's about two to two and a quarter pounds. Four tablespoons of unsalted butter. Four tablespoons of all-purpose flour. Two teaspoons of mustard powder. Salt to taste. Freshly ground black pepper or ground cayenne. Two cups of milk. Whole is best, but low fat will probably work just fine. You'll need one and a quarter cups plus two tablespoons of grated cheddar, the strongest that you can get, preferably English or Irish, chopped chives or flat leaf parsley for garnish, and this is optional. Heat your oven to 400 degrees and then trim the cauliflower and remove the tough core. Cut it into one to two inch florets and steam for about 10 minutes or parboil for six to seven minutes until the florets are firm but tender. Drain, if needed, and spread florets on a towel so that it can wick out as much moisture as possible. Meanwhile, in a medium saucepan, melt the butter over medium-high heat. Add flour and whisk to combine. Cook for one minute to ensure that you get rid of the floury taste. Add mustard powder and a pinch of cayenne or a few grinds of black pepper and stir to combine. Drizzle in milk and a thin, steady stream, whisking the whole time so that no lumps form. Season with salt and bring the mixture to a simmer, stirring with a spoon, and the mixture should thicken. Stir in one and a quarter cups of cheddar, a handful at a time, letting each handful melt before you add the next. Taste the sauce and adjust the seasonings if needed. And then spread the cauliflower florets in a two-quart baking oven-proof baking dish. Spoon the sauce over the florets and sprinkle with the remaining two tablespoons of cheese. Bake until bronzed and bubbly, about 30 minutes. For reference, if I wasn't in such a rush to get dinner out on the table, I would have baked mine a minute or two longer, up to 35 minutes. Sprinkle with herbs if desired and eat with abandon. P.S. A hat tip to Kate, who reminded me earlier this week that this site is way overdue for cauliflower cheese and immediately solving my what-to-make-for-dinner crisis du jour. Next, we've got a recipe for perfect garlic bread. I know it doesn't seem like you should need a recipe for per- for garlic bread. We're going to go ahead and start with the recipe and see how far we get on this one. My go-to garlic bread has always been one minced garlic clove and about one-eighth teaspoon of salt and a pinch of pepper flakes per two tablespoons of melted butter, plus some parsley to finish because it just doesn't look right without it. I use about twice this for half a baguette, but when I'm feeling fancy, I can't resist the with the works effect of carbone style garlic bread with oregano, parmesan, and chives on top too. So for this, you'll need one large, not too firm, seeded baguette. That's about 12 ounces. Eight tablespoons of unsalted or salted butter. If it's salted, skip the salt below, of course, and then cut that into chunks. Four medium cloves of garlic, minced. Pinches of red pepper flakes to taste. One half teaspoon of coarse or kosher salt. One half teaspoon of dried oregano. This is optional. One third to one half cup of finely grated Parmesan or aged Pecorino cheese. This is also optional. One tablespoon of finely chopped parsley and one tablespoon of minced chives. Also optional. Heat your oven's broiler. 
You're going to line a large baking sheet with foil to limit the mess you make. Cut the baguette lengthwise and arrange the pieces with a cut side up in a pan. Put the butter, garlic, pepper flakes, and salt in a small saucepan and melt over medium-high heat, stirring until the garlic is sizzling in the butter but not browning, and then remove from the heat and stir in the oregano if you're using it. Spoon it evenly over the bread and sprinkle the bread with Parmesan if you're using and broil it, keeping a close watch on it and turning it as needed for even coloring for about two to three minutes. Seriously, watch it like a hawk. Nothing sadder than under or overcooked garlic bread. Remove it from the oven and sprinkle with parsley and chives if you're using and cut it into segments. We keep extras of in the in foil in the fridge and rewarm them in the oven. But you know it's always best on the first day. So we're going to find a little bit more about this story. I just wanted to make sure I got the recipe to you today. Does anyone really need a recipe for garlic bread? I mean, garlic plus butter plus bread equals it's impossible to imagine a bad outcome. Yet I do use one. I mean, prior to today, it was in my head and did not include baguette weights because despite the impression that this site might give you, I'm not that crazy upstairs. I use a recipe because like most people in the year 2016, I don't take carb consumption lightly. And garlic bread is even more of a rare luxury. But because of this, if I'm going to make it, I don't want it to be almost ripe. It use a little more salt or too much garlic and too little butter and absolutely not pale or soggy or crouton hard. I want each time I make it to be like the best time I ever had it. A beacon of bronzed edges, lightly drenched with garlic butter with a whiff of herbs and a kiss of salty heat. That's why you need a recipe. <laughs> You can have it with a great big pot of easy meatballs with a pile of crispy zucchini chips and a dollop of marinara with a perfect green salad so earnest you might even earn seconds of bread or with a humble bowl of broth with beans and greens for balance. Hope you enjoyed this today. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.